You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. we're, uh, we've been in First Peter for a few weeks, and just a reminder that Peter is writing um, to some small congregations in what is uh, currently uh, present-day Turkey, especially around the Mediterranean. And uh, he, as he says in the very beginning of his letter, that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, equating their existence in these places as almost as if in exile. And these are people who are from those places but have converted to be followers of Jesus Christ. Almost, in a sense, equating them like the new Israel when speaking about the dispersion, just as um, the Jewish people just before Jesus' coming would have been dispersed similarly throughout these regions. Um, Peter is seeing them and equating their existence like the the Jews in the dispersion and the Jews in exile in Babylon. So they are here in these places uh, feeling like resident aliens. And these congregations were uh, most likely planted by uh, Jewish converts from the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, is next week. And we'll see uh, where some of these cities are mentioned or these places are mentioned uh, in Acts chapter 2. And we'll take a break from 1 Peter next week and look at Acts chapter 2, which is totally providential, unplanned. uh, But here you have it. Um, So these are folks who originally were probably Jewish converts from these places at Pentecost who went back to their homeland and planted these churches. They were disciples of Peter. And, uh, and now they've, there's a bug flying around my face, now they have um, pagan Greco-Roman converts from those places in their congregations. And as I said, they're still living in their homeland and all these people have a new point of view that makes them stand out uh, amidst their neighbors. It's interesting to note that at the end of the letter, Peter says that he's writing from Babylon, um, which is probably code for Rome. And just as there are several references uh, to Rome as Babylon in the book of Revelation, that's probably what he's doing here. And Peter and and the church in Rome uh, knew similar uh, persecution and pressure, just as these folks did uh, in these places in the Mediterranean uh, area of where Turkey is right now. Um, According to tradition, Peter was crucified in Rome under the Emperor Nero, and traditionally uh, what's told is that he was crucified upside down at his request with his head down and his feet up uh, because he saw himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way that, uh, that Jesus was crucified. Uh, So at the time, we can see that being a Christian, whether in Rome or these places where he's writing the letter to, was an unpopular idea. Uh, It might even lead to one's death, if not simply uh, social complications, to say the least. Uh, And Peter, who would be killed for this faith, is encouraging these folks in these congregations to live out their belief, not not to hide it, um, but to, to continue to 
to keep the faith not only privately but also publicly, um, uh, but to not do it um, in a way that uh, is self-serving, but uh, a way that maintains integrity and also honors one's neighbors. Well, last week we saw that uh, Peter calls the believers a chosen race of God. Again, similarly using language like uh, we would talk about Israel in the Old Testament. And this is true even while the, these folks are in exile in their, their native countries. So here, amidst the pressure that they're feeling from the na- their neighbors, they're called to be, to be holy and honorable before their neighbors. And, uh, and these are their neighbors who are still in darkness, just as these folks once were. And uh, some who, uh, are, um, who are in the darkness might punish those who are in the light of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, that some might be called out of the darkness still into God's marvelous light because of the, the witness that they're bearing to their neighbors. And this will only happen by the uh, exe- elect exiles bearing that public witness of hope. And it's not only a spoken word, but it's also uh, due to their, their life and their conduct that it mu- their, their life and conduct must line up with what they're believing. And this is the sort of seedbed, the context on which the gospel might be proclaimed. That the way that we behave, and you've seen this before, the way that people talk about Christians and churches, uh, the way that I once felt in my life, maybe you feel this way still to, your, to this day, that uh, the way that Christians behave as hypocritical might actually prevent folks from hearing the gospel. Um, and so there's something to do with the fact that the way that we're living out our life actually either helps or hinders the proclamation. And so our passage uh, today uh, is marked off with the first word, beloved, comma, as if um, it's almost like it's a, a new beginning of a new letter. Uh, we've had two, uh, well, a chapter and a half so far. Um, And now here's a new section that's marked off with that word beloved. And it's obvious even to a casual reader, even if you don't really do much heavy lifting, that this is all, everything um, from 2.11 to 3.12 is all one big uh, related section. Because Peter addresses, first of all, servants, or you could say slaves, and interestingly, not masters. He addresses wives. He addresses husbands, and then finally, all of you, all of the brotherhood is the word that he uses. And their call is to honor and love others and each other, even if this entails suffering at the hands of those who are uh, in in authority and in the majority of life where they live. And he connects all of this to Christ's own suffering. Just as Christ suffered, they too will suffer. And I venture to say that chapter 2, verse 17, which you have in front of you, or if you want to look at it in a Bible, is sort of key that's helpful for understanding the message of this entire passage. There's much more that we can say, but at least here in verse 17 helps us understand what at face value, because of some of the things that he says to servants and wives, people might sort um, sort of balk at. But here he says in verse 17, first of all, honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice that there are two honors, one love, and one fear. They are to love the brotherhood, their fellow believers, and to fear God, but they are to honor everyone and the emperor. So the strongest words here are the love and the fear. 
almost bookending it, right? The, the, the strong words of love and fear on either the outside and the inside are the two words about honoring. Uh, so meanwhile, they're not to disgrace, uh, complain, or uh, seek revenge when it comes to their neighbors, their, their unconverted family maybe, and even the emperor. In the same way that Jesus Christ honored people like Pontius Pilate and the chief priests, and those who marched him around the day before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion, in the same way that while he was suffering, he honored them. But he loved his disciples, and he feared his father, whereas love meaning a sort of self-sacrificial giving. And, you know, today's Mother's Day, which is what I call a Hallmark card holiday, right? L love you, Mom. You know, love moms, love my wife. But, you know, often we equate these sort of days with the sort of sentimentality that love is mistaken uh, to mean just sort of a warm affection. But when the Bible's talking about love, it means a, a giving of self, of putting others before oneself, even to the point of sacrifice. And fear meaning a sort of awesome uh, reverence and obedience of God. Well, the emperor of Rome uh, demanded his subjects to serve him, to revere him and to obey him. So to honor the emperor and fear God, the God of Jesus Christ, would actually lead to problems, even just simply honoring the emperor, because they would be fearing God before the emperor. Actually, the Roman state was quite tolerant of other religions and were ready to incorporate Jesus Christ into their pantheon, you know, to be sort of democratic about the whole ordeal. But the, the Christians in the Roman Empire would not capitulate to that extent on their beliefs. There was a, a, a sort of practice that they had that, you know, they would tell Christians and others, I guess, like, if you would just take a pinch of incense... And, um, and burn it before uh, an image of the emperor, just as a sort of, you know, to pay sort of homage, at least to the emperor. We'll let you keep doing everything that you, you're doing. If you could just take a little bit of incense and burn it before the, this image of the emperor, and they refused to do this small act because it was idol worship. And some of them were even martyred for refusing to pinch some incense for Caesar. Similarly, servants uh, are to honor and respect even unjust masters, but not to fear them, yet to honor them. Let's just take a, a quick look at the message uh, to wives, because I know that's the one that stands out. That everybody wants, to, wants me to make this whole sermon probably about that passage. You know, what does this mean? Because it sounds antiquated, of course, right? When we read passages like this or things that Paul writes that sound quite similar from places like Ephesians. Um, Here's the thing that you have to understand about what Peter is writing here and to, to people in Greco-Roman society. Many men of any means at the time would have had not only a wife, but concubines. And those concubines would have existed for their pleasure and also as a sort of social outlet, someone that they were more interested in spending time with than their wife not only for physical pleasure, but also for sort of companionship. And so their wives were merely sort of for bearing heirs and managing the household, the sort of proverbial housewife with bare feet and the apron and two children on the hips, right? That's who the wife was, where it was the concubine and some other people uh, served some of these uh, other um, uh, uh, priorities in their life. 
So Peter's saying to husbands that husbands and wives should be bound together for all these roles, for all of them. You know, forget other people. Be devoted simply to your husband and your wife for procreation, companionship, and for sharing the household together. And even this, that they should pray together if they, if they both share the faith. And if one of them doesn't have the faith, pray that the other will come uh, to the faith and that your conduct, which will be strange perhaps, but honoring uh, and, uh, and serving might be the sort of seedbed, as I said, for them hearing the gospel. So such relationships and households would have actually stood out in this society as totally different. And they would have been curious, why are these people living this way? Here's the main point, though. Jesus Christ suffered for any of this to happen. N- you know, none of this makes any sense unless Jesus Christ suffered in the first place. So I mentioned verse 17 as something helpful for understanding the entire passage, but the real kicker is if you look at verses 21 through 25, which kind of seem out of place, because he's first of all addressing servants, and then he he, uh, he addresses later wives and husbands and all, all of you, and there's a sort of sidebar here in verses 21 through 25 where he talks about Christ's suffering. Here, let me just read it again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to uh, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And I mean, this is obvious reference, by the way, to Isaiah 53. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Not only did Jesus Christ die, as we so often talk about, but he also suffered in his passion, first of all, to emancipate all of us um, from evil and the bondage of sin. And only secondly is this suffering a model for us to follow. And we'll only follow this model if we, under, if we come to grips with the fact that through his suffering, we have been emancipated from that bondage. And now God wants his freed people still living on earth, still living in societies that don't understand us, to live in light of the ethics of heaven. And God works through uh, people suffering, just as he did with Jesus Christ, to create the context for others to finally hear the good news of emancipation from the bondage of sin and all other powers of evil, the powers that Zach was talking about at the beginning of our service, which might include emperors, slave drivers, and uh, sort of patriarchal um, husbands. We're called to suffer as part of our witness to those around us, those who are still in, in the darkness as we once were, and those who were in the light bore witness to us. Uh, we just had a, a, a new son, our third child, who's um, just turned 10 months, um, and we named him Simeon after two men. I want to tell you about one of them. The first one is in the Bible, um, from Luke chapter 2, uh, and then the second one is a man named Charles Simeon, who I want to talk to you about. 
He was the longtime pastor of a church in Cambridge, England. This is back in the 17th, late 17th and uh, early 18th centuries. Uh, sorry, 17th and 1800s. Um, and he was very unpopular at first. He was an evangelical, gospel-preaching uh, churchman. And the congregation would have preferred to have another man for the job. They had a guy that they liked for the job, and yet uh, Simeon was appointed to be the pastor of this church. And so the congregation would do things like disrupt the service uh, so that he couldn't go on preaching. They even locked him out on occasion from the church building that he was the pastor of. And on the street, people would insult him. And he was really young. He was in his 20s. Uh, but this was a man who was dedicated to evangelical gospel preaching ministry, and people in churched England hated him for it to the extent that they would do things like throw rotten tomatoes at him or whatever on the street um, because he was preaching this gospel message. And yet, Simeon remained at this church for over 40 years at this singular parish. And slowly over time, eventually... The congregation became a crowded church who loved him. I mean, you have to imagine that some of the same people who locked him out and disrupted his service came to love him and came to faith through his, uh, through his witness. He even influenced many students at Cambridge, uh, many of whom would go on to be in ministry, would lead an evangelical re revival in England at the time, some of whom went on to be missionaries in uh, places in Africa and Asia that had never heard the gospel before. People talk about worldwide Anglicanism. We have Charles Simeon to thank for influencing some of these men who would go on to, to plant what are now lar even larger provinces in places like Rwanda. Um, then England now has a, a, a much smaller church than places like this because of uh, what Charles Simeon did. In spite of his initial persecution, Simeon, uh, he, he persevered, and this led uh, to God doing a great work through him that still remains influential uh, centuries later. You know, for me, I don't know about you, but honor those who do me wrong is against my nature. To honor people who do me wrong is against my nature. I, I have a sort of um, a low-grade anger problem all the time. Uh, and I want to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. You know what I mean? In the Old Testament, they talk about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was actually nicer than what most people did, which would be like a life for a tooth or a life for an eye. And then it would go on for generations. Hatfield and McCoy, right? You know, that kind of thing. That's the way that we tend to operate in this world. It's, uh, we not, it's not even enough to just simply repay, but to up the ante when people do us wrong. We want vengeance, <laughs> you know. Uh, Bruce Lee, you killed my father, or whatever, I'll kill you, and your whole family. You know, lock me out of my church, I'll show you. Um, uh, cut me off on the road, I'll ride your tail, whatever it is, <laughs> that sort of thing. I hope maybe you can to relate to this sort of thing happening in your life. Maybe if you're not doing it, you've been a victim of it, to say the least. But Christ already brought justice to an evil and reviling world. And the truth is, I was once one of his enemies. And thank God he did not revile me. And the same should be true for you, too. I wonder if you've uh, remained on the fringe 
of Christian commitment in part because you're aware of the social pressures that it entails to really commit to the identity of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, I say to you, don't fear the sort of quote-unquote emperors of your life, whoever they are. Honor them. As a matter of fact, honor everyone. But fear God and love the brotherhood. And maybe some of these emperors might even join you in the light of Christ. Or maybe you are a committed Christian, and yet all the so many infinitesimal distractions of the world are constantly leading you astray. I remind you that Jesus Christ suffered for you. Live your light in light of the hope you have stored up in heaven. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and fear God. And pray that any, anyone you know who's still in the darkness might be drawn into the light. And here's a, a final word to you, uh, friends, that I'm, um, I'm really appreciating. I don't know about you. I'm really appreciating being in First Peter. I appreciate, I've been appreciating going through whole books of the Bible, but I'm really enjoying being in First Peter right now because I think it speaks so much to the context that we find ourselves in. And if you, if you haven't yet, I, I commend to you to, to read it on your own. And so don't let this final word of this sermon be the final word of this passage for you, that I hope you might, um, to say the least, think about it this week before we come back again next Sunday to consider God's word again, but maybe even talk to each other about it and consider its many riches for your life. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.